The man who had helped save the world from fascist domination by leading the Allies to victory in Europe during World War II walked into a TV studio in Midtown Manhattan on September 11, 1952. The former Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, Dwight David Eisenhower, was now the Republican nominee for president, and he was there reluctantly to do something that until very recently he hadn't thought was necessary. Remove his glasses, have makeup applied, and say one-line campaign phrases into a camera. He had plenty of help, a combination of talents from America's leading ad agencies, including the man upon whom the Mad Men character Don Draper was roughly based, had convinced Eisenhower and his advisors that the best way to reach American voters was the same way they received selling propositions about what soap to use, what car to drive, what cigarette to smoke, by a TV commercial. Eisenhower made the expected objections that it was undignified, that it relied too much on appearance and not enough on substance, and that an old soldier with his record of success shouldn't have to resort to such things. But he did the spots, and as a result, political campaigns were changed forever. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Let's face it, American politics, especially as it has been practiced in the last hundred years or so, has always been closely related to show business. We've had presidents who looked like movie stars. We've had presidents who were movie stars. We've had presidents who've groped movie stars. And from the 1930s on, a president's popularity was often correlated with how he looked or sounded in the media. Because he was stricken with polio, Franklin Delano Roosevelt spent his presidency in a wheelchair. But if you didn't know that, you would never suspect it from watching newsreels, which brought moviegoers visual news in the days before television. There was an unspoken agreement between FDR and cameramen that he would not be photographed in his wheelchair or when he would use leg braces to stand and struggle to stay standing at a podium. Roosevelt had another way to communicate with the American people in an intimate way, the radio. On the air, Roosevelt sounded strong and stable, like a kindly grandfather or uncle, and he cultivated the friendship and confidence of people through regular speeches he called fireside chats, informal talks on everything from economic conditions to the progress of the Allies during World War II. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, yesterday, on June 4th, 1944, Rome fell to American and Allied troops. The first of the Axis capitals is now in our hands. One up and two to go. Over his political career, Roosevelt built his brand without the aid of account executives or media consultants. 
His campaign song was Happy Days Are Here Again, and in photos where he was almost always sitting down, Roosevelt went to great pains, often literally as well as figuratively, to project a kind of jauntiness, symbolized by a cigarette holder clenched in his teeth and pointing practically to the sky. Roosevelt didn't need an advertising agency to communicate with voters, but his Republican opponent in the 1936 election, Kansas Governor Alf Landon, did. An agency worked with Landon on radio spots and helped stage a debate between a Landon supporter and recordings of President Roosevelt the night before the election. But that program was abruptly removed from the air because in those days, no radio station was allowed to air pre-recorded material. Roosevelt defeated Landon easily, and in all he would be elected to office an unprecedented four times. In 1932, 1936, 1940, and 1944. And for his 1944 run, the Roosevelt campaign recruited Hollywood stars like James Cagney and Judy Garland to appear on an all-star radio show on the night before Election Day. Ahead is clear now. Let's keep the engines humming. Don't change the engineer now. Cause the new world battle is a coming. This is Humphrey Bogart. I'm a registered voter in the 16th Congressional District of California. I'm one of a number of people from a great many walks of life who come here tonight of our own free will because we have a deep and common interest in the outcome tomorrow of the most important election in this history of our country. We're here to tell you why we're going to vote a certain way. And what we've got to say will come straight from the shoulder, even if it's sung sometimes instead of spoken. Personally, I'm voting for Franklin D. Roosevelt because I think he's one of the world's greatest humanitarians. And because he's leading our fight against the enemies of a free people in a free world. When Roosevelt died suddenly just a few months into his fourth term, Vice President Harry Truman became the chief executive. As president, Truman ordered the dropping of the atomic bomb, and World War II came to an end just four months after Roosevelt's passing. The post-war period was marked by the explosion of new housing, of new babies, of new products for consumers, and, of course, of television. The medium had been around since the 1920s, and regular broadcasts had begun in the late 1930s, but networks didn't begin serious TV programming until after the war, and sales of TV sets took off. Television began playing a political role during the campaign of 1948. Harry Truman's Republican opponent was former New York City District Attorney and current state governor, Thomas Dewey. Dewey had made headlines in the 1930s by fighting racketeers. He had a trademark pencil-thin mustache. Alice Roosevelt Longworth, the daughter of Teddy Roosevelt and cousin of Franklin, remarked that Dewey looked like the bridegroom on a wedding cake. The general assumption was that after 16 consecutive years of a Democrat in the White House, Dewey would easily defeat Truman. Dewey, who had his pompous side, also believed the hype. 
Some of Dewey's advisors told him that TV was becoming too important to ignore. Dewey's friend E.H. Little, the president of Colgate Palmolive, offered the services of the Ted Bates Agency, which did ads for Colgate, in creating a multimedia campaign for Dewey. But for whatever reason, conceit, complacency, or just plain cluelessness, Dewey turned down Little's offer. Ignoring the polls that showed an easy victory for Dewey, Harry Truman embarked on a cross-country whistle-stop tour and campaigned as furiously as possible. You probably know the rest of the story. Truman pulled out an improbable win, and Dewey was zero for two. He had also been defeated by Roosevelt in 1944. Dewey knew he would never get another chance to run for president, but he had his eye on someone else as the Republican candidate for 1952, Dwight David Eisenhower. Eisenhower was actually being wooed by Democrats and Republicans. In 1947, Harry Truman was worried that the Republicans were going to nominate General Douglas MacArthur to run in 1948, and he wrote Eisenhower offering to take second place on the ticket if Ike, as he was informally known, would run. But Eisenhower wasn't a fan of Truman, whose administration was becoming associated with corruption, and he wasn't yet ready to run for the office. Dewey endorsed Eisenhower in 1950, and along with Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, began a charm offensive aimed at getting him to run. But Eisenhower was a reluctant candidate. He didn't even know that Lodge was placing his name on the New Hampshire primary ballot. And as he kept winning primaries, he told family and friends that he didn't believe his lead for the nomination was as large as it seemed. At about the same time, there was a hit musical on Broadway with Ethel Merman titled Call Me Madam. It was set in Washington, D.C., and composer Irving Berlin added a song to the score that brought an ovation at every performance. The presidential year will soon be drawing near. The people soon will choose their favorite son. I wonder what they'll do in 1952. I wonder who they'll send to Washington. Uh, pardon me, but they like Ike. And Ike is good on a mic. They like Ike. But Ike says he don't wanna. That makes Ike the kind of fella they like. And what's more, they seem to think he's gonna. By May 1952, there were 17 million television sets in use in America. Three out of five families could receive TV signals, and the number leapfrogged each year. Facts like that led to Thomas Dewey changing his mind about the importance of widespread advertising of political candidates. He also began slightly changing his focus. He went from actively campaigning for Eisenhower, who was clearly doing all right on his own, to raising money, money that would pay for TV advertising. Eisenhower didn't campaign in the primaries. His first political speech wasn't made until June, just a month before he won the nomination. And maybe that's just as well. Americans certainly admired Eisenhower, but his speaking style on the stump was less than inspiring. One of Eisenhower's friends understood that. He was Ben Duffy, president of the advertising firm Batten, Barton, Durston, and Osborne, known more commonly as BBDO. The agency had been around for almost 25 years, with clients including General Motors, DuPont, 
Time Magazine and the American Tobacco Company. Duffy approached Eisenhower with the soft sell. He explained that as a close friend of Eisenhower, he knew of the general's warmth and integrity, but he further explained that campaign stump speeches and TV broadcasts of those same speeches were not the most effective way to communicate those human qualities to the viewer. But an advertising campaign, heavily reliant on TV commercials, could do that. Eisenhower's opponent in the 1952 election was the Democratic governor of Illinois, Adlai Stevenson. Like Eisenhower, Stevenson was a reluctant candidate. President Harry Truman had dropped out of the running after he was defeated in the New Hampshire primary by Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver, who had made a name for himself through television. He was the star of Senate hearings into organized crime. Truman didn't trust Kefauver and approached Stevenson, who said no. So it looked like Kefauver was going to wrap up the nomination. The Democratic convention was held in Chicago, and as governor of the host state, Adlai Stevenson gave the opening welcome. Unlike Eisenhower, Stephen was a talented orator, and he gave a witty, pugnacious speech. The Illinois delegation loved the speech and put Stevenson's name into nomination for the president. Kefauver led on the first ballot, but he didn't get enough delegate votes to secure the nomination. And then on the third ballot, Stevenson did. And his acceptance speech was something that you could never imagine being given by Dwight Eisenhower. And my friends, even more important than winning the election is governing the nation. That is the test of a political party, the acid final test. When the tumult and the shouting die, when the bands are gone and the lights are dimmed, there is the stark reality of responsibility in an hour of history haunted with those gaunt grim specters of strife, dissension, and materialism at home, and ruthless, inscrutable, and hostile power abroad. The ordeal of the 20th century, the bloodiest, most turbulent era of the whole Christian age is far from over. Sacrifice, patience, understanding, and implacable purpose may be our lot for years to come. Let's face it. Let's talk sense to the American people. Let's tell them the truth, that there are no gains without pains, that, there, that we are now on the eve of great decisions, not easy decisions, like resistance when you're attacked, but a long, patient, costly struggle which alone can assure triumph over the great enemies of man. The delegates again loved Stevenson's acceptance speech, but Republicans countered that it seemed uh, too aloof and that Stevenson seemed too professorial. They even coined a word to describe him, egghead. In the same way that Eisenhower's advisors steered him toward TV commercials, Stevenson was urged to sell himself in 60-second spots. He refused. Up to that point, political parties would buy half-hour blocks of time and broadcast entire speeches on TV, and Stevenson saw no reason to change that. The only problem was that Stevenson worked so furiously on his speeches, revising them right up until airtime, that they couldn't be loaded onto a teleprompter, and invariably the speeches themselves ran so long that Stephen was often caught in mid-phrase as time ran out. 
What's more, the programs preempted the nation's favorite TV shows, and viewers knew just who to blame. One day, Stevenson received a letter from a voter, and it said, I love Lucy, I like Ike, drop dead. As the 1952 campaign progressed, three agencies ended up working on the Eisenhower account, BBDO, the Kudner Agency, and Ted Bates and Company, whose services had been offered to Thomas Dewey in 1948. Bates was known for its hard-sell campaigns for Colgate, creating the slogan, It Cleans Your Breath While It Cleans Your Teeth, for TV and radio spots. Later in the 1950s, the agency would create It Melts in Your Mouth, Not in Your Hand, for M&Ms, and animated spots for Anison that included images like a hammer banging on a cartoon head, promising that the product would deliver fast, fast, fast relief. The man behind those ideas was named Rosser Reeves, and he was with the agency from 1940 until 1966. Unlike Don Draper, Reeves was flamboyant and a bit of a self-promoter. But like Don Draper, he excelled at creating advertising that conveyed what Reeves termed a unique selling proposition, something the product had that the others didn't. His TV spots weren't clever or funny, they just got the point across, even if that meant they were repetitive and even a little irritating. People hated his commercials for Anison, but sales increased. Reeves was given the assignment of creating Eisenhower's TV spots, but it took Eisenhower a little while to wrap his mind around the idea. Reeves countered by getting Eisenhower to admit that he didn't mind paying for an entire speech to air on TV. If we cut that speech to one minute, Reeves asked, is there anything wrong with that? Ike had to admit that there wasn't. After Eisenhower recorded his one-line statements, Reeves and his crew walked over to nearby Radio City Music Hall, and there, among the tourists, they picked a few people at random, took them back to the studio, and fed them questions designed to fit Eisenhower's responses. The TV campaign was called Eisenhower Answers America. The man from Abilene, out of the heartland of America, out of this small frame house in Abilene, Kansas, came a man, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Through the crucial hour of historic D-Day, he brought us to the triumph and peace of B.E. Day. Now, another crucial hour in our history. The big question... General, if war comes, is this country really ready? It is not. The administration has spent many billions of dollars for national defense. Yet today, we haven't enough tanks for the fighting in Korea. It is time for a change. The nation, haunted by the stalemate in Korea, looks to Eisenhower. Eisenhower knows how to deal with the Russians. He has met Europe's leaders, has got them working with us. Elect the number one man for the number one job of our time. November 4th, vote for peace. Vote for Eisenhower. Stevenson responded to Eisenhower Answers America with derision. This isn't a soap opera, he said. This isn't ivory soap versus palm olive. Stevenson had already ruled out doing anything remotely similar, but the Democratic Party could still do TV commercials. Vote Stevenson, vote Stevenson, a man you can believe in, son. From Illinois, whence Lincoln came, his leadership has won him fame. A soldier man is always bound 
to think in terms of battlegrounds. But Stevenson, civilian son, will lead us till the peace is won. The Democratic spots were, well, you've got to admire anybody who can rhyme Stevenson with peace is won. But the unique selling proposition of the Eisenhower spots and the fact that they aired between popular TV shows instead of displacing them made them a boost to the campaign. Then in late September, just a few weeks after the commercials were made, TV ended up playing another significant role in the Eisenhower campaign. Ike's vice presidential choice, California Senator Richard Nixon, was accused of improprieties relating to a fund established by his backers to reimburse him for political expenses. The decision was made that Nixon would respond to the charges in a TV speech with slick production values from a Hollywood studio where TV variety shows originated. The stage was outfitted to look like a simple study with Nixon at a desk addressing the camera straight on while his adoring wife Pat sat nearby. Nixon told his story, his modest childhood and the struggles of he and his wife and daughters to make ends meet. He listed his assets and liabilities, including the mortgage and the fact that he drove a two-year-old Oldsmobile. Then Nixon took a page from the Franklin Roosevelt playbook. Sometimes, to make his enemies seem ultra-petty, Roosevelt would tell about how they even criticized his dog, Falla. Well, Nixon had his own dog story. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me, too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checker. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. The Checker speech, as it came to be known, drew 60 million viewers, a record for the time. Reaction was overwhelmingly positive, and Richard Nixon had demonstrated one more way that politicians could borrow showbiz techniques to influence elections. On November 4, 1952, America went to the polls to choose either Eisenhower and Nixon or Stevenson and his running mate, John Sparkman. Eisenhower was the decisive winner, with 39 states and 442 electoral votes to Stevenson's 9 states and 89 electoral votes. When someone asked Stevenson how he felt, he quoted Abraham Lincoln. He once said he felt like the little boy who had stubbed his toe in the dark. He said that he was too old to cry, but it hurt too much to laugh. Eisenhower and Stevenson would face off again in the 1956 election, and by that point Eisenhower was getting media training from Hollywood in the form of actor Robert Montgomery. 
Montgomery had been a star at MGM in the 1930s and 40s, and in 1950 he'd begun hosting a dramatic anthology series on NBC TV. He was also the father of actress Elizabeth Montgomery, best known as the star of Bewitched. Montgomery moved into a White House office in 1954 and coached Eisenhower on how to speak and carry himself at press conferences and other public events. Stevenson and the Democrats had learned a lesson from 1952. In 1956, they hired their own ad agency, Norman Craig and Cummel, the same agency that brought the idea of the $64,000 question to one of their other clients, Revlon head Charles Revson. You can learn more about that story by listening to our podcasts about the quiz show scandals. In his second run for the presidency and his second run against Eisenhower, Stevenson did even worse than he did in 1952. He only got 73 electoral votes, 16 fewer than four years earlier. By this point, political TV advertising was the genie that was not going back into the bottle. John Kennedy used it in 1960 to emphasize his youth and to promote his campaign song, High Hopes. Lyndon Johnson used it in 1964, including an infamous spot which ran just once and implied that Johnson's opponent, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, was ready to push the nuclear button. Richard Nixon used TV in 1968 to convey youth and energy in a strategy developed by his own media consultant, Roger Ailes, later the head of Fox News. When Nixon won that year, Ailes told author Joan McGinnis, This is it. This is the way they'll be elected forevermore. The next guys up will have to be performers. Or, at the very least, reality show hosts. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, researched, and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. If you listen to us on iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also rating us. That helps other people find us. You can also find episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page or at IncredibleInman.com on the podcast page. See you later.